Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Nicole Wegner to tell us all about her book titled Marshalling Peace, How the Peacekeeping Myth Legitimizes Warfare, um, just published in 2023 from Edinburgh University Press. This is importantly not a book about peacekeeping practices. It's about storytelling. It's about fantasies. It's about the ways in which people think of peacekeeping, the myths around it, um, and a lot of the work that that myth does, which is absolutely fascinating. I found a lot of very interesting things about this book, um, things that I knew but hadn't thought of that way, things I hadn't ever connected to peacekeeping before. So, Nicole, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about your fabulous book. Thank you so much for having me. Before we dive into the book itself, though, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Sure, great. Um, well, I uh, my name is Nicole Wegner, and I'm currently a lecturer at the University of Auckland in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, but I'm Canadian by citizenship, and uh, as you know, the book sort of focuses on Canada as a case study for exploring a lot of the issues that I walk through. Now, the book itself is an expansion of my doctoral research that sought to examine what I call the Canadian peacekeeping myth, or as I describe it in the book, the kind of um, political and social consciousness by Canadians where they believe that their military is the world's best peacekeepers. And while my dissertation focused on what happened to the Canadian or the, the peacekeeping myth when Canada engaged in the um, ISAF missions in Afghanistan between 2001 and 2014, the book itself is actually a broader examination of myths about both peace and peacekeeping and uh, what happens when we fail to critically investigate those concepts and practices. So as you mentioned, the book is being published with Edinburgh University Press and some like some of the other books um, in the Advances in Critical Military Studies series, I wrote the book as an intervention to what I see as a fairly widespread acceptance of militarism, um, both socially and politically, but also um, dominantly within international relations scholarship. Um, and so that is really sort of the underpinning of the book. Um, and there is a quote in the book that I hoped maybe I could kick us off with. And it's one of my favorite quotes by Bell Hooks, um, where she says, to fight militarism, we must resist the socialization and brainwashing in our culture that teaches passive acceptance of violence in daily life, that teaches us we can eliminate violence with violence. And so for me, uh, the book and my focus on martial peace um, wants to sort of interrogate these beliefs that we can eliminate violence with violence or the threat of violence um, and to sort of push us towards thinking about bigger or more emancipatory visions of peace. What a fabulous introduction to the book. I think that gives us a really good foundation um, to dive into those arguments. And of course, um, I have to ask at first, tell us about the term martial peace. What, what is it and why is it problematic? Great. Okay. Well, um, martial peace is a concept that I use throughout the book, but it actually builds on work that was done by Alison Howell, who is sort of a feminist icon of mine. She has a fairly well-known 
piece called Forget Militarization, and it was published in the International Journal of Feminist Politics in 2018. And in it, she introduces a concept called martial politics. And she uses martial politics to define um, the warlike or the martial relations that she sees as long-standing elements of liberal politics. And these are these sort of warlike relations that are enacted usually by the state or state agents on racialized, indigenous, disabled, and queer populations, um, usually populations that have been cast as a threat to civil order. And so uh, I th- the piece was obviously very inspirational to me, and I sort of suggest that what's not being said in that particular article of hers is, is that that vision of civil order can actually be understood as a martialized version of peace or the concept that I'm calling martial peace. So how I describe it in the book is that martial peace is a narrow vision of peace. Uh, and it's one that prioritizes order over other characteristics like justice, well-being, connection, etc. And so, um, it's very similar to uh, Galting's uh, distinction of negative peace from positive peace. Martial, fe- martial peace is a form of negative peace, um, or the understanding that peace is the absence of armed conflict and violence. Um, and I sort of take issue with this concept throughout the book, and I argue that it's problematic. Wonderful. Um, Thank you for giving us that definition and kind of explaining how it fits into the existing literature. That's often really helpful in sort of understanding where something comes from and then going, oh, I see all the threads that you're pulling together. Um, So then kind of extending that, one of the things I was most fascinated by um, is that you don't just think about how peace is marshaled into myth, how myths are created, but also why myths are created. So at the risk of giving you a very tricky question to answer, um, could you please take us through both the how and the why that peace is marshaled in this way into a myth? Sure, certainly. Um, So one of the things that I uh, go into the book is a lot of the literature that exists in international relations on myth, and there's lots of different approaches to how we study myths or what it means. And so how I define it is I, I see myths as these widely believed narratives that have um, a political function to them because they cast certain ideological commitments as apolitical truths. Um, and these are things that are deeply embedded in and they shape our perspectives of the world and how we think that the world works. Um, and so when I talk about how peace is marshalized or the marshalling of peace to justify militarized interventions. It's not something to me that's overall that surprising um, because history is full of narratives that have been used to legitimize violence and coercion against others. Um, IR is full of these, like in some instances, you can look at the ways this has been done historically through religious discourse. And in other instances, this has been done through legalistic discourse. So I'm sort of thinking of like just war theories here. But what I do in the book is I'm suggesting that this um, marshalling of peace is done through discourses about peace and peacekeeping that reproduce um, certain assumptions. And these assumptions I see as somewhat paradoxical because underpinning a lot of discourse about peace and peacekeeping is a belief that we require militaries and military force to preserve, implement, or keep peace. We require 
uh, institutions trained in lethal violence to prevent lethal violence from occurring, right? So you can sort of see there's a paradox here. Um, and it, it happens um, through a lot of the discourse that I expand in, uh, ex, sorry, examine in the book. Um, but what I also look at is, is that the peacekeeping myth is connected to other myths in IR. And so Cynthia Weber talks a lot about this um, in her relatively famous uh, queer reading of international relations, where she talks about other myths of international relations, such as, um, you know, anarchy is the underlying principle of international relations. And there's, there's plenty of scholarship that is uh, proceeds from that understanding without uh, critically investigating it. And so in the book, I sort of take aim at some of those myths as well, too, where I disagree with the belief that violence is inevitable or that's an inevitable part of global politics, and therefore we need militarized institutions to prevent it. So you can kind of see that my nuanced take is that conflict might be inevitable in global relations, but I'm not necessarily convinced that violence needs to be. But so much of international relations scholarship rests on ontological assumptions about the world and about the presumed inevitable of violence. And I'm sort of hoping that what this work might do is start to challenge that or to be an intervention to that. Hmm. So going deeper into this idea of peace and violence, um, can you talk a bit about peacekeeping in particular and how that becomes kind of what's the myth there and how does that happen? Certainly. So um, I outline in the book I sort of distill what I think the peacekeeping myth is into a really short snippet. And it's the belief that peacekeeping is a moral, softer, or more legitimate means of using militarized force in the world. And obviously, there's lots of ways that all myths become naturalized. But in the book, what I look at is, is how this particular myth becomes sort of naturalized or commonplace. And I look at both UN doctrine, and I look at academic scholarship um, on peacekeeping as sources of where this happens. So, for example, the book goes through is uh, sort of a, a close look at United Nations doctrines. And there's actually three that have been associated with traditional or early generation peacekeeping, um, sometimes referred to as the Trinity. So traditional peacekeeping focuses on limited force um, that's restricted to self-defense or in upholding mission mandates that missions need to have the consent of warring parties prior to deployment, and that there is presumed impartiality of peacekeepers in the implementation of agreements. And so those three distinctions position peacekeeping as this sort of uh, limited or principled use of militarized force, force and are sort of a key component to the mythologization of the peacekeeping myth. But... Um, Similar assumptions about peacekeeping or the belief that it's somehow uh, distinct from other forms of militarized violence are really common in a lot of international relations and peace and conflict studies research because a lot of that research is uh, quantitatively driven. Uh, a lot of it is very invested in seeking how to measure the effectiveness of peacekeeping efforts or to theorize um, how or why particular interventions result in ceasefires where others do not have the same types of uh, successes. And a lot of this research sort of reproduces the unquestioned assumption that peacekeeping is a distinct um, form of militarized force. Um, in the book in specific, I look at uh, lots of ways in which peacekeeping has been um, topographized, right? So it talks about 
uh, traditional versus muscular peacekeeping or uh, early generations versus robust or latter generation peacekeeping for a second and third generation peacekeeping. So there's all different ways that academics use to describe it. Um, But what is a really common theme through a lot of this, and it's sort of captured by um, another scholar by the name of Daniel Levine that describes peacekeeping as um, distinguished from other forms of warfare by its object rather than its nature. And I really think that that sort of accurately captures how um, peacekeeping is mythologized as a form of militarized violence, but that's distinct from other forms of militarized violence in a way that is presumed to be more ethical or less violence. Um, And so it's this focus on the technicalities of mandates or the presumed moral legitimacy of military interventions when done in a multilateral way. Um, And it's sort of the constellation of these various assumptions in both UN doctrine and scholarship that coheres into this simplified peacekeeping myth. Um, And I want to be clear, like, I actually think that existing research on um, peacekeeping and conflict resolution is actually really important. I'm not trying to um, invalidate scholarship that's out there. I'm just suggesting that it's actually quite narrow. So if the treatment of peacekeeping as a practice or as a subject of scholarship doesn't actually critically investigate the politics that surround the practice because it's assumed that it's politically neutral or potentially even an apolitical activity, um, that's where my work's intervention is. And I try to um, highlight uh, my argument that all militarized intervention is political um, and that even these sort of presumed less violent forms of interventions broadly swept up in myths about peacekeeping, what it is, what it does, can result in unanticipated violence, but we don't pay attention to that if we're not paying, if we're not, you know, sort of really conscious about the fact that this is a deeply political practice. Hmm. So that answer already suggests to us that there's kind of a lot of work that the peacekeeping myth is doing, not just to sort of put forward one particular story, but also to hide some complexities, hide some other aspects of it. And in fact, in the book, you call the peacekeeping myth, quote, intentionally one dimensional. So could you kind of talk about what sort of what's the one dimension and and what's the intentionality behind it? Mm, Yes. Um, This was sort of a theoretical hiccup I had for a long time when writing the book, because in reality, myths don't do things, but the way they're mobilized is how things are enabled, if that makes sense. So I'm suggesting that the way that the peacekeeping myth is mobilized is one-dimensional for a couple of reasons. One is is that it sort of inadequately captures peacekeeping practices and the complexity that goes with them, Um, but it's also one-dimensional because it couldn't be a myth if it wasn't. Myths are inherently one-dimensional. They um, cohere around these sort of simplistic dominant narratives that make things appear natural, true, and simple. And so they kind of need to be simple or they wind up being simple because simple is appealing. And I mean, like, don't we all want to believe in some simplistic and easy explanation for complicated issues? (laughs) It's sort of a, it's sort of the, one of the reasons why they resonate and why they become sort of entrenched is, is that it seems like an easy explanation to explain a complex phenomena. So if, we were to, we, broadly speaking, to discuss peacekeeping with more nuance as detail or detail, as I kind of do in chapter two of the book, 
um, I would imagine that most people's eyes would kind of glaze over as I move through a lot of the technicalities or context specific details. Um, people, <laughs> I think that the reason that the peacekeeping myth has become simplified is, is that is uh, easy way for people to grasp it. It's an easy way to be politically mobilized, which in the latter half of the book, I talk about the ways that it is and that um, it's intentionally oversimplified because it coheres more complicated explanations and narratives into this sort of cohesive truth for both effectiveness and wide appeal. So let's get into that, right? This um, use of the myth. What does it produce? What politics or policies does this sort of simplification that a lot of people seem to like and latch onto, what does it enable and what does it sort of hide away? Mm, yeah. So the basic premise of the argument that I make in the book is, is that the peacekeeping myth reproduces militarism in global relations. Um, so militarism is a, it's a set of beliefs and values about the utility and the necessity of militaries and armed violence. And actually, um, another author who has a book in the same series that this was published in, Chris Rossdale, has a great definition of militarism where um, he calls it a social system of values and practices which promote and underpin the use of military approaches to a vast range of solutions. And so... Um, in sort of akin to other feminist work, I hope to question the paradox of using agents who are skilled in lethal capacities in combat to enforce peace, um, or I, to question the use of violence or the threat of violence to prevent more violence, right? This sort of paradox that's at the heart of what's going on. So if we unquestionably accept that all countries require a military because peace would be threatened without them, it enables you know, widespread development of increasingly lethal military technologies and their procurement. And this, of course, comes at the expense of diverting public expenditure to other social or economic issues or the development of industries um, to, uh, devoted to sort of enhancing lethal capacities rather than, for example, channeling expertise or funding into potential solutions for what I see as bigger security issues in the world, like impending climate collapse. Um, so my issue with militarism and the peacekeeping myths reproduction of it um, comes down to the fact that I believe it produces policies that support military expansion and the use of military violence for political means. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure... Um, where your listeners sit on that particular point. But what I've noticed is, is that it's often really easy to point at, say, you know, overt American uh, militarism as understood through the American military industrial complex and be like, oh, boo, bad American militarism. And what I take issue in the book is, is that militarism exists in other forms. And it's often that we're not paying attention to countries who justify, for example, continued equipment procurement or military recruitment on the grounds of supporting multilateral peacekeeping efforts, even though it's the same equipment and the same training. And so this is my uh, sort of intervention on the Canadian point is, is that, um, you know, these myths actually have tangible material outcomes. Um, but the second part of your question, which is that militarism doesn't just enable things or the peacekeeping myths, reproduction of militarism doesn't just enable things, but it also um, hides them or it obscures them. And it, I, 
see militarism as obscuring the nature of the politics of using militaries for political goals. So, you know, maybe there's more widespread consensus of people who are critical of, say, uh, the U.S. Uh, 2003 intervention of Iraq, where political violence was justified in the name of a national security threat to Americans. But we often are less critical of the mobilization of militaries in the name of peace, because we always just assume, oh, well, peace is just this inherently good thing, and um, you know, it is somehow more ethical or less violent than outright war. And when we make these sort of cascading assumptions, it becomes really difficult to question the deployment of armed troops in other contexts, specifically contexts where discourses of peace are mobilized to justify the intervention, because we assume, um, you know, that global relations political problem is armed conflict, and once we stop it, we can have peace. So there's all these sort of overlapping um, challenges that come with uh, the peacekeeping myth that really, for me, distills down to the reproduction of militarism, militarist ideology, and obviously the the material manifestations of that in global politics. So now that we have this idea of what is the myth, what is it doing, why do people like it, um, I'm wondering if we can sort of go off uh, something you've mentioned in your previous answer, right? The Canadian one in particular. So what is the Canadian peacekeeping myth and how did that one develop? <laughs> okay. Um, so I, the Canadian peacekeeper myth, or as I discuss it in the book, is certainly related to the broader peacekeeping myth that I outlined earlier. It still assumes that peacekeeping is a more benevolent or less violent use of military force but there is within the Canadian sort of version of this myth that's promoted, uh, you know, within the Canadian state and by Canadian politicians. It also draws an assumption that Canada as a nation is a peacekeeping leader and that its military is like particularly well suited to conduct peacekeeping um, based on this really uh, self aggrandizing assumptions about what Canadian ethical political values are. And I'm not the first person to talk about the Canadian peacekeeping myth. There's actually like a fairly well uh, appointed group of scholars within Canada that work in the foreign policy space that have looked at and called what I'm talking about or the the themes of what I'm talking about, the Canadian peacekeeping myth as well. Um, And they kind of fall into two camps. So it's really well hated by military historians and military strategists in Canada who have been very quick to point out that Canada has a robust war history, that the Canadian Armed Forces are actually capable and they're trained to do more than just peacekeeping, but it just seems that a lot of political leaders have chosen to romanticize Canada's peacekeeping history in ways that overshadow Canada's actual war contributions. And on sort of the other camp that has talked about the Canadian peacekeeping myth is feminist scholars who have sought to expose how Canadian peacekeeping or Canadian peacekeepers are far from these um, altruistic, paternal or helpful tropes that are really present in the Canadian myth about peacekeeping. Um, So some of this other scholarship, uh, um, for example, by Sandra Whitworth has looked at, for example, the racist Uh, hazing practices used within peacekeeping units. Um, Other scholarship has looked at uh, sexual exploitation of civilians by peacekeepers. Um, Or another Canadian feminist by the name of Shreen Razak also looked at the torture and murder by Canadian peacekeepers 
of a teenage boy who was stealing food from their peacekeeping barracks during the 1991 peacekeeping mission in Somalia. So both of these camps, if you will, have also critically examined the myth as sort of a means to reveal the fact that it's not historically true and that it's deeply romanticized. But what I look at in the book is, is like, what politically does it do, right? Um, and despite the fact that there is this work out there, this research out there, uh, and these instances out there where it's clear that Canada's peacekeepers don't only do peacekeeping, and they're certainly not always altruistic and benevolent, um, in public memory, the belief that Canada's peacekeeping as a primary use of our military is quite well established, and it's relatively immutable. Um, So what I do in the book is I map out how it is that this myth of Canada being the world's most foremost uh, peacekeepers sort of emerged in nationalistic myths. And I look at a bunch of different sources. So I detail, for example, the celebration of Canada's former Prime Minister, Lester B. Pearson, who's seen as this father of modern peacekeeping due to um, his historical uh, involvement in the first UN mission during the 1956 Suez crisis. Um, he ended up winning a Nobel Prize for his efforts, and that's been well celebrated in Canadian political history. I also consider numerous forms of public memorialization of Canada's peacekeeping history. So there has been peacekeeping images and symbology on currency. It was for, featured on a a $1 coin, which the Canadians call the loonie. And for a number of years, it featured on uh, peacekeepers on the back of a $10 note. And then I detail other sources as well, too, like um, the way it's been celebrated in popular culture. So it features in uh, beer commercials and folk music, and it's been part of the educational curricula. And uh, in the 1990s, there was a really popular nationally televised a commercial series called Heritage Minutes, which featured um, sort of this romanticized history of Canadian peacekeeping. There are statues and buildings dedicated to both Pearson and peacekeeping, uh, most famously the Reconciliation Statue in downtown Ottawa, which is just off the grounds of the Parliament building that depicts um, three Canadian peacekeepers and really celebrates the role of Canada in the formation of UN peacekeeping. And um, if there are Canadians listening to your podcast, this will probably all resonate. They'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember those things. But if we have more international listeners, sort of what I'm trying to articulate here is, is that Canada's military history following World War II is almost exclusively positioned as international peacekeeping, even though that is not Canada's full military history post World War II. But notably due to these representations, there's been relatively consistent national polling showing that Canadians want the priority of their armed forces to be peacekeeping. While in often the same polls, Canadians are unable to demonstrate any sort of accurate knowledge about um, what actually happens when troops are deployed or even being able to list the specific peacekeeping missions that Canada has been involved with. So the public knows peacekeeping is important and they love celebrating that history, even though they actually don't have a lot of information about it. So when I talk about the Canadian peacekeeping myth, I continue to use the word myth because it's both inaccurate and it's one-dimensional. And even when the validity of this myth has been exposed, uh, people still love it. And it still endures as this real key facet of nationalistic discourse in Canada. So let's go into kind of what you consider in the book to be one of the things that really could have challenged this 
myth that people really like. Um, and it's not the factual debunking of, hang on a second, that's not actually accurate for Canada's military history. Um, it's, I guess, the clash between this is what we think there is and it's important and all the polling, we love this. And also kind of the one of the things, at least, that was also publicly very well known, which was the American-led intervention into Afghanistan, right? There's loads of peacekeeping missions that the general public may not have been aware of, but I think we can pretty generally say that that one um, did get some headlines and knowledge. Um, and so you investigate in the book kind of, hang on a second, people did know about what was happening in Afghanistan. There are kind of more general critiques of American-led military things going on. Um, and yet Canada's peacekeeping myth was maintained. It was not particularly damaged by Canada's involvement in this particular operation. Um, and very helpfully, you explain how that happened, right? You've kind of got the um, two different things clashing and one of, them's, one of them wins, and it's maybe not the one we expected to win. So what are the shifts, what are the steps of the process that enabled Canada's peacekeeping myth to essentially survive the challenge of involvement in the Afghanistan operation led by the U.S.? Mm. Yeah, so when we started off chatting um, earlier, if you'll recall, I mentioned the project started out of doctoral research. And my doctoral research wanted to look at... Um, Basically, how it is that Afghanistan, which was explicitly not a peacekeeping mission, would be received by Canadians and how were uh, politicians justifying this military involvement in a war that was explicitly not about peacekeeping, despite the fact that there's this really long standing and beloved myth, right? Um, and I go through this in the book and in a sort of symbolized uh, explanation of it, um, I argue that there's sort of these four distinct uh, maneuvers or narratives that um, happened throughout the 2001 to 2014 uh, intervention. So it starts off like this. Canada agrees to send troops to Afghanistan. They go to support the U.S., who is the primary economic and military ally of Canada. Um, the military historians who I mentioned uh, previously who hated the peacekeeping myth because they believed that it um, emasculated the image of the Canadian uh, military. They're really excited by this. They're all over op-eds, uh, excited to demonstrate, you know, what the forces can really do. And uh, for the most part, there's relatively limited domestic pushback on the war because it's still sort of in that period of shock in the aftermath of 9-11. And I say, okay, well, this is the first discursive maneuver away from this long-stelling celebration of peacekeeping. And it's being done through gendered tropes and gendered language about for example, you know, Canada's fierce warriors who are demonstrating toughness and they're shedding the Boy Scout image. And that was really key part of that discursive shift. And there was a second discursive shift that happens, which is this um, co-occurring utilization of racialized tropes. So in addition to representing Canada's military as a remasculinized institution, there's a lot of discourse from military and political leaders representing um, the Afghan enemy as uh, savage or uncivilized um, and positioning uh, Afghanistan women and girls as victims to this type of barbarism. And, um, you know, the, my book isn't the only uh, feminist work that's looked at this. There's plenty of other scholarship that has documented um, discursive language used like this in the American and British contexts. Uh, Laura Shepard has a really well-known 2006 piece done documenting the same sort of thing in the American context. But what's notable 
for me is, is that this is very distinct in the Canadian context where peacekeeping and human rights um, and that uh, sort of softer language, if you will, was typically used to describe military activities. But what happens is the war is not resolved as quickly as leaders think it will or would have hoped it would. And there is now political pressure to justify ongoing involvement in the intervention to Canadians. So starting around 2006, Canada has this uh, leadership transition from the Liberal Party to the Conservative Party. And despite the fact that those first two themes I talked about, the ones were uh, sort of summoning uh, the remasculinization and the racialization of the enemy, um, even though, you know, those might have been really popular with the Conservative government, national polls start to demonstrate that the Canadian public did not like that at all. They got really tired of discourse that they felt was too Americanized. They did not want to hear rhetoric about freedom and terrorism. And specialized reports showed that Canadians wanted to feel like what they were doing in Afghanistan was helping. They wanted to feel that they weren't these violent warmongers, but that they were somehow akin to peacekeeping. And so the rhetoric by political leaders and branding by the Department of National Defense through recruitment campaigns changed around 2006 to sort of um, reclaim symbology about the peacekeeping uh, myth. And so there's this third discursive shift that um, where we see Canada's involvement in Afghanistan um, is being in the service of victims or being in the service of the democratically elected Afghan parliament and really playing up the ways that they're helping women and children in Afghanistan. And I call this the promotion of the helpful hero trope. So at the same time as this helpful hero trope or the the Peacekeeper 2.0 images being promoted, we also see a surge of the Support the Troops Yellow Ribbon campaign in Canada. This is um, an American-driven movement that found residents in Canada, and Canada's political leadership did this really effective job of parroting the assumption that supporting the troops meant supporting the war, which meant if you criticized the war in Afghanistan, it meant that you were anti-troop or that you were contributing to poor troop morale. So the combination of summoning this Peacekeeper 2.0 image and the support the troops rhetoric meant that despite the fact that Canadians were clear throughout the entire war, they wanted their military to be peacekeepers and not war fighters. Political leadership was able to have the mission extended multiple times. And I suggest that the reason this happened is is that it was by mobilizing uh, these sort of values and symbolism of the peacekeeping myth and positioning Afghanistan or what was going on in Afghanistan as akin to peacekeeping. It was just enough that leadership was able to sustain consent for the war. The war was never popular in Canada, but the mobilization of the peacekeeping myth meant that anti-war efforts were restrained enough or dampened enough uh, that Canada ended up spending billions of dollars on a war that the public didn't want. And it was this really uh, sort of fascinating way in which war was able to be justified in the name of peace. And so that sort of underpins the whole premise that I'm talking about here is, is that the peacekeeping myth was really deliberately utilized to mobilize consent for war. And in a lot of ways, that seems to be a very similar thing, if maybe even the exact same thing that explains um, why the public perception in Canada about what the military is doing is so focused on the international realm um, and is so blind to the much more, in a lot of ways, visible, right? I mean, how many Canadians go to Afghanistan? Um, visible reality of what 
the police forces, what the military is doing within Canada. Um, so can you kind of, you know, we've talked a bit about, oh, things are being obscured, things like things are being um, sort of shoved out of the picture, but I'd love to kind of bring those, some of those elements into the picture. So what connections can we see between Canada's international peacekeeping, the sort of political focus on that aspect and making international things that aren't peacekeeping look enough like peacekeeping, and the what's happening inside Canada with the use of force by the state. Mm, that's great. Okay. Um, yeah, so we, we had just talked about Afghanistan. It's something that should have unsettled the peacekeeping myth, but it didn't. And then the other thing I talk about in the book is the fact that um, Canadian martial state institutions have long used violence against Indigenous communities in Canada, and that often also goes unseen because of the peacekeeping myth. And so what I try to do is I try to demonstrate the connection between policing in Canada and the military, because Canada has a really unique relationship between those two institutions. And so um, it exists in what I sort of see as three major ways. So first, the Canadian military and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP, as well as other police institutions, are considered fraternal organizations. So they have historically uh, sometimes shared or loaned each other equipment. They deploy together uh, on various peacekeeping service missions. And as I detail in the book, they have a history of coordinated and shared efforts to suppress Indigenous land protests throughout Canadian history. Um, Secondly, perhaps also unique to the Canadian context, the original formation of the National Police Force, which uh, during its original formation was known as the Northwest Mounted Police, was military in nature. It was made of ex-military personnel. It was deployed militarily in the early 20th century wars to the Boer Wars and the Siberian Wars. And so the very nature of Canadian national police institutions has heavily militarized roots but was also present as sort of both an internal and an external tool uh, by the Canadian state before the official Canadian army or what was known as the Canadian Expeditionary Force was even formed around World War I. So there's this really entangled history between policing and uh, military institutions in Canada. Uh, but the third thing and the third connection that I think is really important that I want to highlight is, is that both the uh, Canadian forces and the RCMP are well-loved, symbolic Canadian institutions. So um, there's polls that I talk about in the book where people have been asked to name what they think are the most prominent Canadian symbols. And so people say things like, oh, uh, maple syrup and hockey and the maple leaf and the beaver. And all these things make the top 10, but so do the RCMP Mountie and so do Canadian peacekeepers. And so I'm suggesting throughout the book that the peacekeeping myth or the belief that Canadians are well suited to peacekeeping due to, you know, these sort of presumed values also has been extended to police forces as well due to the longstanding promotion of the idea that um, Canadian political values are driven by peace, order and good governance. Um, and in the book, I show why I think this is an issue that despite the fact that Canadians believe that their military and police institutions are driven by benevolence or nonviolence, altruism, uh, or paternal helpfulness. Uh, both institutions have been central to practices of both imperialism and colonialism, including martial violence 
or as Howell calls it, the martial politics that have existed in Canadian history. And so in particular, I consider the use of combined military police resources to suppress Indigenous uh, communities' claims to sovereignty in Canada. Um, And I argue that the Canadian peacekeeping myth has functioned to obscure that kind of colonial violence, both in and by uh, the Canadian state. So... You've given us a lot of understanding already of sort of, despite the lack of factual accuracy, why this Canadian peacekeeping myth is so strong, Um, you know, linking all sorts of things. And it plays into a lot of political campaigns. It's been going on for decades. I mean, there's a lot of obvious reasons you've already explained. Um, Is there anything else you'd like us to understand about why this myth endures? Yeah, yeah. Like, honestly, I was surprised because when I was in the doctoral research, I was sure that Canada's involvement in Afghanistan and it's like uh, increasingly uh, limited or decreasing participation in international peacekeeping meant the myth was going to fade. And it didn't. Um, And like I talk about how in the 2015 Justin Trudeau election campaign, a lot of the campaign rhetoric really capitalized upon narratives about like, oh, if we're elected, we're going to see this return to peacekeeping and principle of international leadership. And it was obviously an effective strategy because it, it won the election and they're still in power. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, like it, it is, is really deeply uh, seeped in the Canadian national imaginary. Now, Some scholars have suggested that, you know, this clinging to peacekeeping as an identity is a simplistic way to summon ideas of national unity in a country that's actually otherwise um, linguistically, culturally, ethically, regionally very diverse. Um, But I also think, and I mentioned this in the book, that the peacekeeping myth has this sort of unspoken undertone of anti-Americanism to it. Um, It's this way for Canadians to feel like their international military activities are distinct from the U.S., um, that they're somehow less imperial, less violent, kind of like little brother has a chip on his shoulder sort of thing. Um, but what I conclude the book with is the primary reason I think the myth endures is because it feels good for those that want to believe in it. So I'm Canadian. I'm a settler Canadian. Uh, the myth's self-aggrandizing nature feels really good when you pretend it's about you personally, right? Like, oh, Canadians are so friendly and kind and they aren't warmongers and they're really committed to helping in international affairs. And when you take those things and you reflect them back onto yourself, it feels really good. And it's probably therefore not surprising that the ideas resonate with individuals. But I also think particularly because uh, Canadians and like, quite frankly, myself as well, haven't effectively... Um, confronted their own colonial history. And I think that the peacekeeping myth is a way to distract from that in a way that people like to cling to. It's sort of this nostalgic vision of what it, or romanticized vision of what it means to be Canadian. And it allows people not to look closely at the colonial politics and privileges that lots of settler Canadians like myself have experienced. And so I think there's a real personal aspect to the reasons why people continue to cling to this really romanticized, if not wildly overstated, national myth. 
moving from one aspect of your identity to another facet of what you uh, do from being Canadian to being a scholar, I was wondering if you could maybe speak, uh, you you obviously already have earlier in the interview, but is there maybe, I think one of the things that was so interesting and useful about the book is kind of the fact you're in a lot of ways talking directly to Canadians, but you're also talking directly to scholars. Um, and how we study these things and what we look at and what we maybe don't look at as much. Um, And this is obviously something you've talked a bit about already, but is there anything else um, you sort of want to say about why you think the peacekeeping myth and investigating it should matter to scholars? Mm. Well, I I think it should matter to scholars. Um, Even if all it's doing is illuminating how frequently we research or we theorize peace, without paying close attention to what it is or what we mean by that, um, as well as the ways that IR research reproduces the notion that we need militaries and martial force for peace to be possible. So that's certainly one thing as well, too. Um, I'm sure at this point, some of your readers are like, oh, she's probably just exclusively a pacifist. And that's not really accurate. That's not actually what I'm putting forward in the book. Um, I'm hoping that you know, hopefully if you read the book, that you'll be able to see that the nuance of what I'm saying is, is that our assumptions about peace and violence often rest on this really highly dichotomous distinction between those two concepts. Um, but the representation of war and peace or violence and peace as binaries serves to obscure a lot of really important political discussions about power and justice. And I feel like IR does focus on power, but it does it in a really narrow way. And we are only now just starting to see more discussions about the intersections between violence and justice. And so I really think that the peacekeeping myth uh, might help to break that open so that IR can start to have more conversations about that. Lovely. Thank you. Um, In that kind of vein of what could happen next? What could this lead to? Uh, I'd love to ask our traditional final question, which does, I admit, seem mildly absurd because this book has literally just come out, Um, but it is available for people to read. So is there anything you might be working on or look to be working on now that this project is done, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about the peacekeeping myth? Sure. Yeah. Um, So my research now has pivoted slightly. And what I'm looking at in my current research is the intersections of militarization and climate justice. So I'm really interested in how climate security is being conceptualized and mobilized by militaries. And I want to investigate uh, how new forms of militarization can distract us from meaningful action towards climate solutions or climate justice. And so it might it might seem like a big step to the left, but for me, the links between my old and um, old, I guess, the research that's just come out in the book and my emerging research, it's, it's clear to me because I still see militarism or militarist ideology as a huge impediment to removing the political obstacles required for meaningful climate action. Um, I'm aware of the ways that militaries themselves are implicated in ecological damage and fossil fuel consumption. I want to look specifically at how military solutions to greening combat operations or greening military operations are probably not the emancipatory solution we think we need for global ecological security. But I think probably more important if we want to link this back to the book is is that um, anti-colonialism needs to be a big part of how we think about both peace and demilitarization globally. 
uh, meaningful visions of peace and justice uh, need to really think more holistically. And so this emerging project still takes issue with militarism and still strives to expand our visions of peace. Um, But I'm building on those in sort of a new area where I think these ideas can be applied. Well, that sounds fascinating. Um, If that becomes a book, we'll have you back and you can tell us all about it. Um, But in the meantime, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Marshalling Peace, How the Peacekeeper Myth Legitimizes Warfare, just out from Edinburgh University Press. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you so much for having me.